0: 666. Well, so this morning we come to another strange, interesting, intriguing passage in Revelation. Another vision, this time of a terrifying beast that comes out of the earth. I thought it might just be helpful uh, to remind ourselves quickly of where we are in the flow of Revelation because today's vision is connected to previous visions. So, in fact, if you go back to chapter 12 just really quickly... Uh, Chapter 12 began a new visionary cycle in the book. You you know, the book has a series of these visionary cycles that all hang together. And chapter 12 begins another one. And in chapter 12 and 13 and following, what what, what the revelation is doing is it's showing us, sort of revealing the supernatural spiritual realities that stand behind this world. Not only is there this world that we can see and not only are there the the challenges that we face in this world as Christians, temptations, trials, but, but Revelation wants to show us that behind that and working through those things is an invisible spiritual world with opponents and enemies who are set against God's people. So chapter 12, we met the dragon. Remember that? The big red dragon of chapter 12, who is Satan? And we saw that at Christ's resurrection, Satan was thrown down and defeated. But even though he was defeated, he's not yet destroyed. And so though he has been decisively conquered at the cross, he still wages a kind of uh, rearguard guerrilla warfare against the Christians until Christ comes again. Uh, so if you look at chapter 12, verse 12, I think that verse kind of summarizes chapter 12. It says, Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell in them, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So you have Satan energizing in uh, world uh, events to try to crush God's people. He can't fight Christ in heaven, so he's going to try to harass and kill God's people on earth. So now he calls forth some allies. He calls up some agents to help him. And that's what you studied last Sunday. Chapter 13 verses 1 to 10 is the the beast that comes out of the ocean, this terrifying beast. And we saw that that's a, that beast is there's a lot of things to be said, but the basic gist of it is it's a symbol for evil, hostile, persecuting kingdoms and governments and leaders. It's a it's hostile persecuting states, antichrist states that seek to oppress And to destroy the people of God. Well now, in our text, verses 11 to 18, he's calling forth a second ally. The dragon is uh, sort of raising up now out of the earth a second helper. Another beast, as it says in verse 11. So that now we have before us a kind of unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and another beast. Or as he's called elsewhere in the book of Revelation, he's called the false prophet. Let's look at our text. Let's examine this third beast, the third member of the unholy trinity. And you'll notice, uh, I'd like to just point out three observations about this beast. The first observation is this. This beast is a diabolical deceiver. That this beast's mode of operation is to deceive and to trick. Look at verse 11. He says, "Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So looks like a lamb, sounds like the dragon. Uh, you, you know, you think of a lamb, fluffy, innocent, harmless, not a threat to anybody. But not only does lamb connote all that, but in the book of Revelation, everywhere else the lamb refers to who? To Jesus. That's his his main tag in Revelation. He's the lamb." And and so, this is is someone who can impersonate Christ, who can deceive us into thinking it's God speaking, but it really isn't. He's a counterfeiter, is what he is. Uh, This is the false prophet. So, he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. He's, as, as I said, he's called the false prophet. If you want to put a bookmark here in Revelation 13, flip over to Revelation 19 real quick. Revelation 19, verse 19. You have the the final battle when Christ returns and finally conquers his enemies. You look at Revelation 19:19. 19, 19, it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse. That's Jesus and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. Who's that? He's the one who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf and with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So it's the same guy we're studying. He's called the false prophet in that verse. So, so you know, a false prophet is is a deceiver. He's a, a, a religious huckster who tricks us into believing lies about God and whom we should worship. So if the first beast uh, is... It's terrifying and powerful and brutish. The second beast is clever and deceitful and sly and works through subterfuge. Uh, if the first beast, you might say, represents uh, antichrist governments and powers, the second beast represents antichrist religions and philosophies that work together with those powers. This beast is a dragon in sheep's clothing. Let's look at a second observation about the beast. So, observation number one, he's a diabolical deceiver. Number two, his mission is to cause people to worship the first beast. So, uh, kind of like you think of the whole, you know, we said that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is the unholy Trinity of dragon, beast, and false prophet. And, and just as the, uh, the Holy Spirit's role is to glorify Christ. So, this character mimics that by glorifying the first beast. Uh, He's a false prophet. Um, A false prophet uh, would seek to cause people to worship a false god. Look at verse 12. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. Here we go. And he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So that's his job, is to deceive people into thinking that the beast is really all-powerful, can't be destroyed. You can kill it, it comes back from the dead. No one can defeat the beast. Who can make war with the beast? And so this guy's job is to make us believe that the beast is sovereign and powerful. Notice what he does too down in verse 14. Uh, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. So again, he's a deceiver. He ordered them to set up an image, and know it's like a statue or an idol, in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So so he even had them worship a statue of the beast. Now, this prophecy would have, and these two prophecies about these two beasts would have really resonated with the people to whom the book of Revelation was originally written. You know, they would read about this evil beast, this persecuting beast coming up out of the ocean, and they would have said, man, that's who? Rome. You know, they were under the persecution of Rome, this tyrannical government that was destroying Christians. And then they would have read about the second beast and they would say, yeah, we know about this too. Because Rome was not only this terrifying, uh, powerful, brutish government, but they were called to worship the emperor of Rome as God. Caesar was regarded as a deity. And so his, his worship was being enforced as well. And the Christians who received this letter originally were experiencing this. Um, we know from history that that Domitian was the most likely the emperor at the time when the book of Revelation was written. And Domitian was, uh, well, it seems like a lot of those emperors of Rome were kind of out out there a little bit. They're, I don't know if it was all the incest or what, but they were really messed up, these emperors of Rome. And this guy, Domitian, he was a mess too. He, he thought he was God He was very tyrannical and authoritarian in the control of his empire. And as time went on, his empire started to fall apart. So he did what most totalitarians do. He just clamped down even tighter upon his empire. And, uh, And so part of what he did to control things in Rome was that he really pushed emperor worship. So your way of expressing loyalty to the emperor was to worship him as a deity. And this came over to where the Christians were, to whom the letters were written in the book of Revelation. In fact, we know from history that um, he set up a big statue of himself in Ephesus and had people worship it. So now try to imagine this. Try to imagine being a Christian, living in the first century, and Caesar is mandating that people worship him to show their loyalty. That, That if you're going to be a good citizen in good standing and show yourself to be a good Roman citizen, you have to say Caesar is Lord and burn incense to him and worship him. Imagine the, the festival uh, parades. You know, you know, we have these parades here in Hingham, like on the 4th of July or whatever. Imagine the, the festival parade for the Celebrate the Emperor's Birthday. And there are these festivals going down the streets, and everyone's coming out of their house, giving offerings and worshiping Caesar. And then they go by the Christian's house, and there's the Christians, you know. <laughs> you know. And now there's this social pressure against these Christians. Why won't you guys be loyal to Caesar? You're unpatriotic. Don't you believe You know, that the Romans thought the Christians were atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods? Kind of interesting, the charges that were leveled against them. So there's this enormous social and political pressure to worship the Caesar of Rome. And then a third observation about this beast. The first is he's a diabolical deceiver. Number two, his purpose is to deceive people into worshiping the first beast. And then number three... Uh, look at the tactics he uses to deceive people. Look how he does it. First, he uses miracles. Verse 13, He performed great and miraculous signs, um, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Another sign he did in verse 15, He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak the image, the statue could speak, and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed, So there were sort of signs and wonders and miracles and, people, and they were used to deceive people. Now we know from ancient literature that apparently it was fairly well known that the um, priests in the pagan temples and some of the leaders in the Roman court and in the courts of the governors would use kind of stage magic to trick people into believing they were divine. Uh, the, the priests would practice ventriloquism. They would actually, you know, go by the statue, and you know, and people would think <laughs> the statue was talking. I I doubt it was actually a puppet, but they would throw their voice. Um, there would be uh, pyrotechnics, you know, sort of ancient pyrotechnics that were used to make people think there was thunder and lightning and fire. Uh, so, so it's possible that, that it's describing here these kinds of stage magic sort of tricks. It's also possible that we're talking here about real demonic supernatural power that's being exerted. As Christians, we have a supernatural worldview. We believe that there, is a, there are powers beyond the natural laws of this world uh, and that some of them are evil. So perhaps that's what's going on in this verse. What's interesting though, and the main point, whatever these signs and wonders are, is that they're tricking people. And it's, it's, uh, we look in scripture and we see there are warnings to be on your guard against false signs and wonders. Take out this uh, sermon notes that's in your bulletin. I did put together a few notes for you. And look at uh, page 2 under the false signs and wonders. Interesting text from Deuteronomy chapter 13. I was kind of intrigued by this when I was studying. It's on page 2. It's the second quotation down. Deuteronomy 13. Moses is telling the Israelites, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder... And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, so So if he announces a miracle or a sign, and it happens, so it really works, and then he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dream. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that interesting? Like, there can actually be false signs and wonders. And notice, too, that these false prophets can arise from within the community of faith. That it wasn't only the imperial cult that was threatening the Christians in Revelation, but it was false prophets, as we saw in chapters 2 and 3, even from within their own congregation, who were calling for people to, to worship Caesar and to participate in the idolatry of their culture. And even if they have signs and wonders, don't follow them. In you know, Matthew 24, Jesus says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. And I think that's a really good warning for us because sometimes as Christians and I've seen Christians, maybe we all have, get caught up in excitement about miracles, signs, wonders, prophecies, visions, dreams. You know, there's some Christians who just get so into that and I think it's a mistake. Not that God can't do miracles, healing, signs, wonders, dreams. God can do whatever God wants to do and I believe that God does. But But there's a kind of sort of temptation in some Christian circles to get so involved in that, to get so focused on those things that we become susceptible to false signs, false wonders. Just because something is miraculous doesn't mean it's from God is what this text is telling us. So what we have to do is we have to discern things through the Word of God. The working of the Holy Spirit never contradicts the Word of God, which is the Holy Spirit's Word. You know, the word and spirit always work together, so we use God's word to test the spirits and to test experiences to see what is true and what is false. So, so be wary of signs and wonders. they can lead astray. And then notice the second thing that, uh, going back to Revelation 13, notice the second thing this beast uses uh, to trick people, or, or a, a tool he uses. He uses this mark, the mark of the beast, verse 16. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So, Revelation is a very symbolic book. It's very figurative. It's tough to tell if this is a literal mark or if this is a figurative, symbolic kind of thing. Certainly, we know that believers were marked on their foreheads uh, as god's people and that was sort of a symbolic way of identifying them it's not that we actually go around as christians with a mark in our heads so it's possible that's the same thing here or, or perhaps in some circumstances there's there's some literal mark. you know who knows for sure but i think the point is the use of this mark is to divide people and to identify those who are following the beast and those who aren't and, and so in the time of revelation when it was written Uh, A lot of Christians, a lot of people, tradesmen, were part of guilds, you know, kind of like unions today. So if you were a silversmith or a carpenter or uh, maybe you worked with wool or you were a banker in your city, you might join the banking guild or the wool guild or the silversmith's guild. And these guilds were often pagan in nature. So now you're a Christian and and you have to go to the the guild celebration and they're like, you know, we're going to worship Caesar at our guild celebration because we're going to show that we're loyal to Rome. And now you're a Christian who says, I can't do that. I don't believe in that. Well, then you're out of the guild. (laughs) Good luck doing business in this city anymore, pal. And and now you are economically blacklisted and ostracized from the community around you. Very difficult circumstances for Christians, potentially financially, in these days. So this is this beast. He's, He's a wily one. He is the dragon in sheep's clothing. He's a diabolical deceiver. His mission is to deceive people into worshiping the first beast. He uses false miracles and all kinds of social pressure marks to distinguish between people to make them feel guilty and to be a part of things. And these believers in the first century were experiencing it full force. But, question for you Did this beast die out with the fall of Rome? Is this antichrist deceptive religion gone? from the face of the earth because the Roman Empire went away. Well, the dragon's still here. The first beast is certainly still here. Oppressive, evil governments are at work in the world today. And I believe this this beast is here as well. So so where is he at work in the world? What is he doing? Well, it's tough to say because he's a, a trick trickster. So sometimes it's tough to detect him in what he's doing in the world. And it's always a little... Uh, tenuous to try to identify things I, I i suspect the safest answer is just to say he's at work everywhere that every human society is fundamentally apostate there's no human society on earth no culture or government that is that is a god-honoring uh... worshiping of god government we're all fundamentally apostate all of sin and fall short of the glory of god so probably these forces are at work in different degrees and in different ways in all societies some places more strongly and more clearly than others uh, you know, there are those instances in history where you can almost see the beast at work. You know, I think in the 20th century, uh, probably the easy example is like Hitler and the Third Reich. I mean, if, if Hitler and his empire wasn't the destructive beast, then I I don't know what a destructive beast looks like then. You know, someone that evil, that violent, that satanic and destructive. But not only was the Third Reich powerful like that, but, you know, there was this kind of religion around it. I mean, Hitler... He wasn't just respected or followed. He was revered with a kind of messianic awe. I mean, there were propagandists who, who would set up these big meetings and you know, thousands of people would come and Hitler would be three hours late and people would get tired and they'd be restless and finally his plane would start circling and the crowds were going wild because they'd been waiting all day and all this was very choreographed. And Then he'd step up to the podium and, oh, the Fuhrer is here. There was sort of a messianic aura that was set up about him. Um, I think perhaps we see that these beasts operating today in uh, countries around the world that have, uh, that have a very fundamentalistic Islamic sort of republic government. Um, you know, you have Sharia law, which is very oppressive in many ways. You know, where Sharia law is enforced, you typically don't find religious freedom in human rights. <laughs> it's a very oppressive kind of legal system, and it's buttressed by an antichrist religion. Islam is an antichrist Religion. Now, when I say Islam, I mean the, the religion. I'm not talking about Muslims. I love Muslims. They're people who, who need to know the Lord just like everyone else. I'm talking about the religious system itself as Antichrist. You know, it denies that Jesus is the Messiah in the same way that the Bible talks about it. It denies that He's the Son of God. The Quran denies that Jesus died on a cross, it said He only appeared to. I mean, that's just undercutting the very gospel itself. That's antichrist religion. Perhaps we see this these two beasts at work, you know, in you know communist governments that have cropped up in the last century or so. Uh, you know, communism is kind of an interesting thing because on one hand, it's not religious at all; it's overtly atheistic. That's part of communistic belief. But on the other hand, communist governments almost take on a godlike presence themselves. The promises that communism makes. Or that you know we can create fairness for everybody. We can provide for everybody. Everybody will be taken care of. The government can solve it all. It is sort of like wow. That's those are some big claims for what government and this belief system can do. Where is the beast in our culture today? I don't know. Like I said, he's so tricky and slippery. It's tough to spot him. Maybe that's something for you to discuss at lunch. How about that? Topic for discussion. Where is this? Antichrist religious uh, pressure at work in our culture today. And, you know, it's tough to say. A couple thoughts I had, I just sort of throw out, and you guys can talk about these at lunch. One is in, perhaps in our culture today, the kind of militaristic pluralism that we experience. You know, by pluralism I mean that, that there's a plurality of religious beliefs and views. And on one hand, let me just say, I'm all in favor of religious pluralism. I want to live in a place where I'm free to practice my religion, and others are too. So in that sense of pluralism, pluralism is, I think, a good thing. But I'm talking about what happens out of pluralism, which is uh, th- this sort of idea that grows out of it, that therefore, because we have all these religions, we have to affirm them all as true, we have to affirm them all as valid, we have to accept them all you know, as, as equally good and true. And that is Antichrist, you know? You can't say in a culture like that, "I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life," without having a real strong pushback. You want to tick off a bunch of people religiously? Get a bunch of people together—you know, atheists, Buddhists, New Age, Wiccan—I don't care who they are—and just tell them all, "I believe Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and that without Him, you're lost." You know? <laughs> just you can you can you can imagine this in your head, can't you? You know what? What is that? You know th- that's that's the antichrist sort of superstructure of re- so whatever your particular religion is, we all kind of have this other thing in the back of our minds, which is this militant pluralism that presses down the idea that Jesus is the savior, that he is the Christ and the coming king. Or another one, there's pra- there's pluralism. I think another maybe sort of systemic religious antichrist thing in our culture is. Privatization of our faith. Again, it's the idea that you can believe whatever you want. You can be a Christian, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, you can be a Jedi. I mean, we really don't care. Um, Your higher power can be Mickey Mouse. That's fine. Just please keep it to yourself. That's the other pressure we feel. Believe whatever you want, keep it to yourself. That faith has no place in government, it has no place in school, it has no place at work, it has no place on the lacrosse team. Keep it out of our lives. You know, you can have your faith. Just keep it in your head. Just, you know, quietly hum it to yourself. But don't sing out loud. We don't want to hear your song. Just keep it in your own head. And we have our own song. It's just called Secularization, and we're all going to hum it together. We're in the public area. And again, that's Antichrist. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord of Washington, D.C., He's Lord of the White House. He's Lord of the Senate. He's Lord of all. There's not one inch of creation over which Jesus does not say, I am Lord. And so how how can we keep these things to ourselves? He's told us to be His ambassadors and witnesses. Christianity certainly is a very personal thing. But it's not a private thing. The Gospel must become very personal to us. But it's not a private thing. Thing. It's something that we're to share because we love people, and we want them to know the Savior and the way of salvation. And so, there's probably more, but I don't know. That, that would just be something for you guys to discuss. How do we see antichrist religion or religious thoughts or theories at work against the gospel in our own culture today? And I'd be remiss if I didn't also point out that in Revelation 13, this beast certainly had legs in the first century A.D is certainly alive and at work in different ways today in different cultures, but that there is also the Scripture I think teaches very clearly a final, ultimate manifestation of the beast that's going to come right before Jesus comes, so sort of a, sort of a super Rome, Rome on steroids, a, a final global antichrist, an antichrist who's already manifesting in different ways now, but will finally come to full fruition that the vine of antichrist that is growing now will reach its flower and its fruit right before christ comes put a bookmark here look back at second thessalonians chapter two it's on page 1173 just a few pages back second thessalonians chapter two the apostle paul writes about this final last hurrah for the beast the beasts plural Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 1173. Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 1, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, huh? false prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So there's, they got some idea in their heads in Thessaloniki that, that uh, the... Uh, the day of the Lord had come, Jesus had already come, and Paul saying, no, no, Jesus hasn't come yet, guys. Chill out. And here's how we know He hasn't come yet, because something's got to happen before He comes that hasn't happened yet. What's got to happen first? The Antichrist has to come. So look at verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion uh, occurs and who? the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man tombed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. There will be some final figure who is worshipped, just like we're reading in Revelation. Now jump down to verse 8. Check this out. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed, get this, in all kinds of counterfeit miracle signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth and have delighted in wickedness. So there is a final, ultimate... Manifestation of these beasts at the very end that will involve, appear as some kind of global, uh, globally scaled delusion, so that all those who don't know Christ will be sort of finally sealed in their resistance to God and rejection of Him. Okay, so what does all this mean today? What does this mean practically for us? What, what, this is all very interesting. What are we going to do with this material? when we go out of here today and go back into our lives, what does this demand of us? What does this text call us to? And I suppose the simple answer of application for this passage is right there in verse 18, back in Revelation 13. Verse 18, this is the application. What does it say in verse 18? This calls for wisdom. We have to be discerning and insightful and detect the truth from the error, the the fake prophet from the true prophet. We have to be discerning. We need wisdom. If the first beast is evil and powerful and destructive, then that calls for something else. In fact, go back to Revelation 13, verse 10. You see a parallel sentence structure there. There it says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. So when the beast is coming at you with the hammer, then that requires Patience and endurance in the face of suffering. But when the beast is coming at you with lies, then that requires discernment and wisdom to see through the smoke screens and detect truth from error. Um, So we have to be discerning. Notice what he says. He goes on, though, in verse 18. He says, If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. I know you've been waiting... For the six six six, what is this? Everyone is just intrigued by the six six six. When I was in high school I used to listen to heavy metal music, and you know that was a big part of metal. Six six six. Ooh, what is it? It's so mysterious and creepy. I don't really know what it is. Um <laughs> I can tell you where I'm leaning interpretively, but I, I don't want to stand up here and and say that I, I fully understand this when I don't. Uh, I, I will say that, that the different interpretations of 666 tend to go into one of two major directions. So there's lots of different answers people have thrown out there, but they, they tend to kind of cluster in two different camps. One interpretation of 666 is to see it as uh, kind of a, a number code for, someone, for some specific identity. Uh, so in other words, it's some kind of code that you have to crack. Uh, there was this ancient thing in the ancient world called gematria. And people would use, they'd use it as a game. People would use it. The rabbis sometimes used it. And basically gematria is you take every letter of the alphabet, Greek alphabet or Hebrew alphabet or whatever, and then you assign a number value to that letter. And then if you spell someone's name, you could then pull out what the number of each letter is and add it up. So, you know, they'd be like, oh, you know, I like a girl. I like 344. And, you know, and all the friends would be like, who's 344? You know, is that Susie? You know, they'd figure out the... You know, so it'd be like a, a game they'd play. It'd be a, a code. Um, and so some some have suggested this is Gematria, and it could be Gematria. I'm actually open to that possibility. The problem is we got the number but not the name, and it is so hard to work backward from the number to the name because, you know, what's, what's the code that got you there? And so if you're creative enough, if you're kind of a math whiz or you like computers and you can set up algorithms and things, you can make a lot of things equal 666, depending on how you set it up and structure it. So it's a little bit bewildering to go backwards. You know, some probably the most common idea is that 666 equals Nero, uh, Nero Caesar. You know, and some scholars suggest that that's what it represents, so that Nero was kind of a symbol of the Antichrist. He was a really evil, corrupt Emperor of Rome, if you remember. But even then, it's, it, it doesn't quite work exactly. I mean, you have to basically take Caesar Nero. I mean, why is it Caesar Nero? Why isn't it just Nero? And then you have to take his name and convert it to Latin script and then take the Hebrew equivalents and then change the spelling slightly to get 666. So, you know, it's it, it's just kind of funky. So I'm open to that possibility, but it just I'm not sure how fruitful it is to explore that. The other possibility, and it's kind of more where I'm leaning while well, being open to that one, is is to see it as a symbolic number. And that makes more sense to me, just given how symbolic numbers have been in Revelation up to this point. They've been so symbolic again and again. So why wouldn't this number also be symbolic? You know, the number seven in Revelation is the number of what? What does it symbolize? Completeness, perfection, totality. You know, the seven days of creation. It's sort of a common number of totality in the Bible. Well, six is like almost seven, but not quite. It's... It's not quite complete. It's incomplete. It, it says here that it's the number of man. You know, interesting, man was created on the sixth day based upon that original creation symbolism. So it's man's number. It's human number. It's incomplete. And it's really incomplete. You know, it's 666. So perhaps that's sort of like, you know, when we sing holy, 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 is a Hebraic repetition for the sake of emphasis, to say God is so holy. He's holy, holy, holy. This is like this guy is so close, but he misses the mark. He's 666. Six, six. It just never quite adds up. And so that, that seems also to kind of fit the context we've studied, that this is a deceiver who's almost a lamb, but not quite. Almost there, but something's off. Something just doesn't add up. It doesn't quite get there, but it's close. And so it's deceptive. And therefore it requires wisdom. And so in that case, the wisdom required is not so much the ability to do mathematical calculations, although that, that could be part of it, but it's more the wisdom to discern truth from error. It's a call for us to really know the gospel and know God's word and, and to not be deceived. Because Satan's not going to come at us as a big dragon saying, hey, I'm the dragon. Give up Jesus and follow me. I mean, we'd, we'd go like, okay, I got you. You're the dragon. He's going to, Try to present something that seems almost right, but just off a little bit, and and so we need the Holy Spirit. Whew. Do we need the Holy Spirit and God's Word to help us to discern these these deceptive tactics that come against us? We have to really know the gospel. I was at a conference um, two weeks ago. I've been gone for two weeks. I was on vacation, but before that, I was at a conference in Kentucky. It was great. It's a conference they do every other year. It's called Together for the Gospel. Uh Pastor Seth was there, our intern Pete was there, Phil Kane was there. And we went together and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of like a spiritual cruise. You know how you go on these cruises and you just eat until you're like stuffed like a tick? I mean, that's how it was. It was sort of a, it was a spiritual cruise. You know, like John Piper was preaching and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, And it's like, oh, you know, just feeding on all these great Bible teachers and just being encouraged. But the, the theme of the conference for Together the Gospel this year was, The unadjusted gospel. I like that. The unadjusted gospel. There's these temptations to take the gospel and then adjust it. You know, turn it down from seven down to six. Make it incomplete in order to fit the culture and to make the gospel fit with the world around us so we don't stand out so much as oddball Christians. And so we want to adjust the gospel. You know, that's our natural temptation. And this conference was just a good reminder to say, no, let's get the gospel right. It's like, I don't know if any of you here have ever um, shot guns, have done target practice with guns, you know, rifles or pistols. You know, some of you have gotten into target practice as a kid or whatever. And, you know, when you're shooting a gun, you know, you line it up, you put it on the target, and you're holding it there. And it's really challenging to hit the bullseye because you have natural sort of, you know, sway. Your hand sways, the wind blows, you know, you, you just tend to grip the gun too much and it ter- turns the target. And so you know, keeping that that target right on line is very challenging. And I think that's this is the idea here. We're called to be faithful to the gospel and there's all these pressures and things pushing us off target. And so being a faithful Christian means constantly battling this temptation to be off target, to get caught up in false ideas and false theories. Uh, we, we need to... Stay true to the gospel. We need discernment to know what's real and what's not. And that discernment comes from the Holy Spirit and from the Word of God working together in our hearts and in our lives. One of the problems I think we're facing today in, in evangelical Christianity is that there's such biblical illiteracy. We just don't know the Bible. There's theological allergicness. People don't want to get into theology. Like, oh, that's theology. Yeah, I'm not into that. And instead, we're we're kind of building an evangelical Christianity that's based upon feelings, emotions, experiences, intuitions, chasing after dreams and visions and experiences. And not that those things are wrong. They all have their place. But at the foundation of our faith is God's Word and God's truth and the Gospel. And if those other things become the foundation... Man, we are sitting ducks for the second beast. He'll talk us into anything and just give us a cool experience and be like, wow, that must be God. You know, because we haven't discerned it through his word and through the gospel. In fact, Paul, uh, the apostle Paul, was very firm about the centrality of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. Get this. Paul says, If even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. He says in the next verse, as we have already said, so now I am saying again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Because heaven and hell are in the balance here. You know, the gospel is how we... We come to have favor with God and to be forgiven of our sins. Brothers and sisters, you can fill the pews of a church without the gospel. You can fill the pews of a church without the gospel. But you can't get one person to heaven without the gospel. And our calling is to make disciples of Christ, not to fill pews. And so we have to constantly fight the temptation to adjust the gospel and adjust what we believe to fit the culture, to fit our society, and to stay on the truth, to be wise, to be discerning, to detect where we're being tempted to compromise with the world around us. So what is the gospel, by the way? It's very simple. Let me give you the gospel in one minute. I'm going to time myself. I did last service, I did one minute, ten seconds. I was very frustrated. I'm going to try to do it in a minute this time. I'm going to give you the gospel in one minute. Okay, it has four parts. Ready? Here it goes. Part number one, there is a God. He made us. He loves us. We owe Him everything. Our worship, our praise, our trust. But point number two, we have failed to give it to Him. We have rejected Him. We've sinned against Him. We've broken His laws. And therefore, all humanity is under God's curse and God's judgment and deserving of hell. But, point number three, He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. And on the cross, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death. He, he took on the cross the punishment for our sins that we deserve. And then He was buried. And then He rose again. He's alive. And He went to heaven. He's coming back someday. And so now, point number four, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God if we will do two things. Repent of our sins And put our faith in Jesus alone as our Savior. And when we do that, there's forgiveness and peace with God. That's the Gospel. 56. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. (laughs) And it's that simple Gospel. So simple you could share it in a minute. So deep you could study it your whole life. It's so wonderful. And we have to just keep that Gospel on target. Do you know the Gospel? Do you know God's Word? Do you know the truth? Have you, more importantly, internalized the Gospel for yourself? Have you personally repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? Let's pray.